this week on the Backtable Podcast. It did give you some granularity about where IBIS is particularly helpful um, and where really should be honing in if you're a new user or you're dabbling a little bit where this should be the right first space to move into. If you're doing Tibial, grab the coronary IBIS from their partners in the cath lab and stick it down there and, and see what you know we've been talking about on this uh, podcast for the last half hour. And you know, it, you'll really see the value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. First, a quick word from our sponsors. This discussion is supported by Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy a resource aimed at improving patient outcomes with awareness, education, and optimized solutions through diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. Their goal is to support healthcare professionals through the clinical pathway, which takes their interest in Philips' best-in-class technology and translates it to applicable skills for appropriate clinical applications. They continue to deliver strategic, valuable educational programs that meet the evolving needs of their customers. Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy will give you access to upcoming live courses led by leaders in the field, self-paced distance learnings, on-demand case reviews, personalized peer-to-peer training, and comprehensive educational opportunities. From basic to advanced educational opportunities, they are dedicated to helping you achieve long-term success as well as competence and confidence with the Philips Peripheral Device Portfolio. They look forward to working with you on your developmental journey. If you have any questions, please contact them at philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Again, that's philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Now, back to the episode. I'm Sabine as your host today, and I'm so happy to welcome back my talented, prolific, and just straight up amazing friend, Dr. Eric Szymski from Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for being awesome to be back on the show. Absolutely. I mean, last time we talked, we talked about PE and PE response teams. That was back in episode 120, April 2021. That was a while ago. Any big changes in your practice over the last two years? No, you know, it's great to get an opportunity to talk about things I'm passionate about. And I would say PE and IVIS are probably in the top three things that I think about on a daily basis. So You know, the PE world, as you've watched, has really evolved and um, continues to. And we've got some big years coming up. And while that's been going on, we've really moved into a new phase in endovascular treatment for peripheral disease with the role of IVIS becoming really a hot topic and an area that I personally have been really invested in. So Backtable always gets the hottest of things going on, really the leaders in the field. And so it's a privilege to be here and to be speaking about both of these really being speaking about IVIS this time and following up our PE conversation. Let's talk about IVIS. I personally, I used to use IVIS sporadically when I first started my practice. And about a year and a half ago, we upgraded our system and got a really much more newer generation of IVIS, which has been a lot better. Are you using IVIS for both artery and veins and everything far in between? Yeah, you know, it's always interesting to talk to an interventional cardiologist about IVIS because most interventionists in training right now or in practice have a specific focus on intravascular imaging during coronary procedures. You know, we, we use IVIS liberally. I mean, I would say in my own practice, 70 to 80% of my coronary interventions are performed by IVIS guidance. And, you know, in the world of coronary intervention, you're applauded when you use IVIS. 
It's like something that you wear that as a badge of honor for having taken the extra time to use a device that is making the procedure safer and outcomes better. And so I spent a lot of time using IVIS in the coronary. When I trained on venous work, we did a lot of IVIS on venous work. And then we had a smattering of IVIS during our peripheral artery interventions. That wasn't as routine back when I was training years ago now. But, you know, again, as you use this device more and more, you get more comfortable with it to the point where I don't even feel comfortable doing some procedures without IVIS. It started to become, you know, a real kind of light bulb to say, I should be thinking about this more in my arterial interventions, doing a little bit more on the venous interventions, exploring where else this device can really help optimize care for patients. And really the goal, obviously, is to make our procedures durable and particularly in the endovascular world. And I think this was really a moment for me to say, I think I can do better with this device as a guidance. So when you're using it for coronary, I mean, what are you looking at in IVIS? Are you just looking at sizing? I mean, tell me what what are the things that are going through your head, one, two, three, four, five, when you're looking at an IVIS image? Yeah, so in the coronary space, it's pretty well regimented in how we perform IVIS. So on the normal case, you cross the lesion with the wire and you IVIS. And on your IVIS, you get a couple things. You get lesion length, so you get healthy to healthy reference. You get the vessel diameter so that you can size your pre-dough balloon. And then we always stent in the coronary, so our coronary stent. Um, and then you get really an understanding of the plaque composition. And in particular for a coronary, it's calcium. How much calcium? What's the arc? So if it's 360 degrees, we know that we probably have to do something to modify that calcium to get a stent in. So every coronary intervention that uses IVIS kind of follows that same routine. We're very regimented in the coronary. When you look at coronary cases, you could be across the country or even the world. We do things almost the same in Boston as in you know, the Netherlands or where else. So, so it's really interesting because in the peripheral, we know that's not the same. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But then you do your ballooning. Usually, if you feel comfortable with how your balloon looks, you put in your stent and then you IVIS again. And when you IVIS again, you're trying to optimize the stent at position. So you want to make sure that there's no malaposition or underexpansion. And then for me, you're looking at the edges of the stent, make sure there's no dissection. And when I walk away from a coronary procedure with a clear IVIS run, showing a good stent, no problems, I'm sleeping better. I always joke about this to my fellows that, yeah. you know, because we always get these calls, oh, they're having a little bit of chest pain or their blood pressure. You know, listen, I, I think I feel very confident based on how I left the lab that that stent's looking good. That stent is perfect, basically. That stent's per area. Got my stamp on it. Now, okay, a little bit of a peculiarity because now I'm using IVIS almost on every intervention too. When you're measuring the size in a coronary or what we're going to extrapolate to peripheral soon, I mean, you see the round ring of calcium. You, usually most arteries are calcified, what we're treating. I mean, are you measuring on the outside of the ring, on the inside, in the middle? It makes a difference. I mean, we're talking about 0.5 millimeters or a millimeter, which makes a difference in our sizing. So where exactly are you measuring? Yeah, so that's a uh, continued debate about what's the right way. And, and we'll, I think we're both on the same page for our arterial sizing Ideally, you're trying to identify the three layers of the vessel wall. And in the coronary, we're really looking to size to that black stripe that happens behind the intima. So that, that's the elastic membrane. And you want to size to that. Now, again, in the corner, though, it's a balloon-mounted stent. And so, you know, you deploy it. That's, that's where you deploy that. So if you, you're sizing to the, the elastic membrane, that's fine. But you're doing that differently when you have an, a, an outward force from a self-expanding stent. Or if you're not stenting, just ballooning. So a lot of times I, I'm, you know, minus the calcium, if I'm making a measurement of the arterial vessel in the periphery, I'm usually doing a luminal diameter or extending it maybe a quarter millimeter longer than the luminal diameter of a healthy reference. 
And that's pretty much how I, I do my measurements. Keeping in mind that, again, a lot of the self-expanding stents we'll use, but even for one-to-one sizing or 1.2 to one sizing for balloon angioplasty. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I'm always confused, like, oh, should I go, you know, what part of the vessel should I measure? Or now it's nice. I can measure myself on the system that I have where I have the tablet in my sterile field. Before I was using this trackball and not I was, my my techs would use it and, and they would measure like from the thigh skin to like the middle of the vessel. There was no no control of it. It makes a world of difference how much easier you can do. And again, you know, I'm a little bit spoiled because I have a um, fellow that's usually doing the pullback and I'm just making bookmarks. I'm telling them to stop. I'll fluoro save where a healthy reference section is on IVIS. And the whole thing goes really quickly when you get used to it. And from my, my humble opinion is that I make a little bit more, you know, smarter device selection after that. I usually don't serially dilate anymore. I'm, I'm just using one balloon that's sized off IVIS. So it definitely makes my procedure more efficient. Absolutely. I mean, it's been a whole difference to me now the past like year having this new system. And it's just been tremendously helpful having that fellow or doing it yourself rather than just relying on nothing. So tell me about your, you, you've released an article last year about the benefit of IVIS. So tell me how you organized the data, and what it really said. Just give us a little summary first and we'll dive into it. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the big question we kind of ran into was we've got a lot of great studies that have come out supporting IVIS. Use is up and particularly in the venous side, use is very high in the venous side. But we've got many specialties performing, you know, procedures in different ways for different indications. So this is one of those situations where we, we step back and we all love randomized trials. I love randomized trials. But it was, you know, this is such a mature field. It's a safe device. And again, as you even speak about in your own experience, that once you start using it, you, you see the benefit of it, was how do we harmonize this across specialties, across arterial and venous beds, harmonize the data, harmonize expert opinion, and create a little bit of a, a guide for new users to follow and feel that they are doing things in line with more experienced users. And I think that was really the origin of how we put together this consensus document. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions, Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphony suite. So tell me a little bit, what exactly, how many people did you have? Tell me about your data. Yeah. So the most important thing was it had to be representative of all specialties practicing in our field. And that was the number one key for this. And it had to be completely independent of any external industry um, you know, relationships. And so we created, how this started was a conversation, honestly, with Phillips in Boston about how do we create a better template, a better format for incorporating IVIS and appropriateness of IVIS and lower extremity interventions. And so myself, Sahil Parikh at Columbia, Ken Rosenfeld at Mass General, created a 12-person steering committee. So and this is all in the Jack Interventions publication that hopefully we'll be able to link to the podcast. But 
We had 12 members who were a mix of vascular surgeons, um, interventional cardiologists, interventional radiologists, vascular medicine specialists from both the U.S. and abroad. And so we really had a, a well-rounded group of experts who were really experienced users, but also balanced in terms of their perspective. Some people felt like IVIS is important, but not for every case. Some people were more like me, where I felt like IVIS if I could or do, I'd use it in every case. And so we tried to get a, a number of opinions, a number of backgrounds represented, and and we dove in. And again, when someone says to you, you should do a consensus document, and I'm like, oh, I, you know, I'm one of those head first people. I'm like, we're doing it. You know, I'm in. So I get home and I'm like smiling. I'm like, we're doing this consensus document. And I sit down on my computer. I'm like, Wait, what, what, how do we do this? You know, and so, um, so we went back to other consensus documents that were done in the cardiology side. We have the American College of Cardiology that has done several a AUC and then a society called Sky as well. So we kind of looked at how they did that. And again, we set up some basic rules. We had to set up the framework for how the survey would be put together. And we had to create criteria, including that anybody on the writing committee can't vote. On the voting committee, no one can be obviously reimbursed. No one can know each other. I had to go through several rounds to meet consensus. And then it came down to how do you structure an appropriate use criteria for IVIS? And again, I could probably pull 10 people in a room and say, how do you use IVIS? And everybody uses IVIS differently. So one of the secret sauces in the in the whole the whole project was creating three phases where we were like, let's focus on three important procedural parts of your intervention where IVIS is utilized or could be utilized or should be utilized. And we'll we'll use it as a framework. And that was probably what I was most proud of out of this because we created this pre-intervention phase, which was like a step through on the corner side, you get the wire across. And then you IVIS. And now you're evaluating again, where's a healthy reference vessel? What's the diameter? Is there a clot in the mixed plaque? You know, and, and that's a pre-intervention phase. We have the procedural phase, which was, okay, I'm going to balloon. And if it doesn't yield, I'm going to IVIS, see what I want to do next. Do I want to stent. Um, if I debulked with atherectomy, I may go back in and make sure I did a sufficient job. And then the post-procedural kind of optimization phases, I put a stent in. Let's just make sure that stent's well opposed, no complications. I've got a small dissection. Let's just take a look at it, make sure it's not extending back into the media or adventitia that I feel like I need to cover. So that was probably the breakthrough in the whole document that is probably the most under-recognized out of the whole thing. Is that format or that form, you can say, is that available to other people? I mean, could I go in my practice and have a little regimented way of how I use IVIS? Because you're right, all eight IRs in my practice, we either, some of them don't use IVIS, some of them do. And then there's some like me who use it all the time, but variable even within myself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, again, if I could say I have one career goal is to get all of us, me, you, all of our colleagues, vascular surgery, vascular medicine, who do superficial, anything that we do in the peripheral vascular space to get it to be done a little bit more consistently and in, in a more standardized approach. And so one of the table in there in the consensus document walks through these three phases and it talks about different clinical scenarios that you're looking for in each phase. And honestly, out of all, you can cite the appropriateness and we'll get into that in a minute. But if anything, if you're a new user, just following that first part is really helpful to standardize how you use it. And again, it's that's how I use almost every one of my IVIS cases. Now, there's always somewhere something happens and I vary from it, but I would say 80, 90% of the time I'm doing the pre-intervention run, I'm doing a middle run, I'm doing my post, and that's how I use IVIS. And I think um, everybody on that committee agreed on it. That's So that's three times you're pulling out the IVIS catheter. I mean, how much time is that adding to your intervention now? I mean, you said you have a well-oiled machine. Realize that some people don't have that. I mean, what would you say is the average time you're adding to an intervention? 
Yeah, it's a really important question. This is, you know, there's a couple we recognize as barriers to implementation costs. We're lucky in the U.S. Our reimbursement is pretty good for these devices. It's not outside the U.S. And that's big trouble. And then it's the how do I learn how to use IVIS? You know, that's a big one where I got lucky because that was part of my coronary training. But in peripheral, we don't really have a lot of peripheral tracks for intravascular imaging, which hopefully will be available in the near future. And then the third is, God, I have eight cases booked and you want me to pull out IVIS three times? Per case, that's 24 times. We're putting that rapid exchange catheter on, you know. We did this study in the coronary side where we have a similar technology called OCT, optical coherence tomography. And so we did this study with Abbott called the Light Lab, where you started to ease and, and increase your use of OCT to guide your coronary intervention. And then they tracked metrics, how much time it took to take that. And you would do one or two runs, how many devices, radiation, contrast exposure. And everything about your procedure became more efficient when you were using intravascular imaging compared to before. Again, it's back to like, I only pulled one balloon. And I didn't take that extra shot of contrast because I had that great run there and I didn't need another image, you know? And so going back to the peripheral, you know, I can't say that it's completely time neutral, but it's in the order of minutes. I mean, I spend more time sometimes just sitting there asking my text to run upstairs and try to find another balloon that wasn't on my shelf or something than I do doing three IVIS runs. And so if you're counting minutes like that, I would say this is minutes well spent because again, you can cut down device utilization, you could cut down contrast, cut down radiation, do something better for the patient um, and potentially improve their outcomes. And, and so I would say if, if you gave me, you know, I would say maybe eight to 10 minutes I get added if I'm doing three IVIS runs at most, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, too, when I upgraded my system, before it used to be like a 20 minute fiasco of like trying to get this or measure. And now it's just like, it's a streamlined machine where I think it adds a couple minutes, but I do, I do less runs. It's so fast and I get so much more information. I'm literally probably opening IVIS for every single PAD case I do now. Whereas before it was probably less than 10%. I mean, it was, it was a big change in my, in my practice and I love it so far. It's really remarkable. And again, the things that you stumble across also where you're like, wow, I would normally guess there. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like something like you got a prosthetic in the way or, you know, it's just some weird angle and you're like, I'm just going to just look at Ivis. It's not going yeah. to lie to me. <laughs> so And and it's yeah. just, it's positive feedback to you. You're like, oh man, I thought that was like a five vessel and this is like eight. Like, oh, what yeah. the hell? That's you the, know? Be that's the best. Know? She's yeah. like, oh man. And then I'll be honest, I've been getting, and I, I know I'm focusing on PAD because that's a lot of part of my practice, but I've been getting more palpable pulses now posts. I was getting them before, but now it's just like much more often. I'm just using bigger devices and, and, and doing better treatment, you know? I mean, I think that patency, the long-term durability of our procedures are based on the size, the diameter, you know, that we get a vessel. And, and that's the same idea in the corner. And so if we're getting better luminal gain at the end, like you said, you're going to get a bigger bounding pulse, but hopefully a better, you know, long-term durability. So what are the take-home points of your consensus guideline? Then, T Tell me what are like the major things that you guys found? After we created those phases, we had to write the whole service. So we tried to really take clinical scenarios that we encounter in a daily practice. Sure. We focused on iliofemoral obstruct venous obstructive disease, and then we broke down lower extremity arterial disease by iliac, fempop, and tibial, just because they have three different, you know, those are all different procedural, uh, in the, you know, approaches. And so... We created this really robust um, survey that was originally about 180 questions for the arterial side, so about 60 per uh, vascular bed. And then we took that survey and it took like 
three and a half hours. So then we were like, no one's going to do this. Yeah. So we randomly picked two questions out of like, we wrote five for each scenario. So two questions, about a 45 minute Arturo survey and about um, a little over 40 questions on the Venus side. It was a little bit uh, shorter for that one. And then we we voted and nominated and, and identified 15 Arturo experts who did not know each other, or at least did not know they were all participating. And then 15 Venus experts, no overlap. None of them were on the writing committee. That's awesome. And we sent them the survey. We sent them the survey. And what we get back, I remember when we unveiled it, it was September of 2021, right before we were planning to uh, have a meeting on this at Viva. And it was like, wow, everybody on this survey, again, we didn't know how people's IVIS experience necessarily were. We were just looking for, you know, representation from different specialties, different countries, whatnot. And and it was really remarkable how much people were on the same page um, about using IVIS, and in particular for tibial intervention. So if you look at the tables that go through the appropriateness, it's kind of, you know, green, yellow, red, appropriate, maybe appropriate, not appropriate. Pretty much the whole survey is green and yellow. There's really no red. And it's all green for tibial. Everybody there who did extensive or advanced tibial work felt like IVIS was a necessary tool to get a good outcome. On the iliac side, you know, a lot of people looked at IVIS as important for later in the procedural. So those kind of optimization phases. And again, I get that, you know, there's a little bit more standardized sizing on iliacs. A lot of people use CT scans so you have to a size. CT, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so it makes more sense that it would be more of a post procedure thing. On the FEMPOP, um, it was more consistently appropriate throughout the procedure scenarios, a touch less on the pre-procedure uh, side, but it was, were a few scenarios were maybe appropriate. But really, I mean, the take home on this was, you know, each voter contributes a score and then we take the median of all the scores and it could be seven to nine to be appropriate. All of them, the medians were like eight or nine, just showing you that people really felt passionately about where IVIS should be used. And so I think we came out of it with two things. One is really a consensus, probably the first time by multiple specialty, multiple providers that IVIS is a mainstay in peripheral intervention now. And then the second thing was it did give you some granularity about where IVIS is particularly helpful um, and where really should be honing in if you're a new user or you're dabbling a little bit where this should be the right first space to move into. If you're doing tibial, grab the coronary IVIS from their partners in the cath lab and stick it down there and, and see what, you know, we've been talking about on this uh, podcast for the last half hour. And, you know, it, you'll really see the value. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm sure in Venus, where was the most appropriate? Iliofem, probably iliac. I mean, that one is a little different, right? I mean, it's like, I think everyone says, you got to Ivis, the common iliac vein. Yeah, I mean, we came off at the right time with this survey because we had the stent recall in one of the sure. newer stents that okay. were on the market. And I had actually looked at this in Medicare data and we were looking at just deep venous stenting with Ivis. And it was like 70% of deep venous stents placed in the U.S., for Medicare patients, older patients sure. had IVC. So we, we focused only really on the iliofemoral um, sure. fetus yeah. disease, both nivel and, and thrombotic. And it was unanimous, like the IVIS was an integral part of any venous intervention. And I know you feel strongly, I feel strongly that is the appropriate way to do venous work. So that was less unexpected. And, and again, very consistent in terms of the recommendation. Yeah. 
No, it's great work. I mean, it's a very good article. I mean, we will link to it in our podcast. Now, I don't think it's available for free. I don't know. I, I actually tried searching it and I think it's on Euro Interventions, but I think they should just have this posted and, and, and available. It'd be awesome. What else is in the future of imaging guidance? You mentioned OCT. Is that ever something we're going to see outside the coronary space? It looks cool. The images are orange and I don't know. There's there's some cool stuff to that, but is it valuable? Yeah. So, you know, OCT, the thing about current OCT devices is that you have to clear blood to get an image and you clear blood by giving contrast. Okay. So there's two components to it that are important. One is how much contrast are you willing to spend on getting an intravascular image? And so if they're normal renal function, it's not the most complex case, that might be fine, but that's not our average case, as you know. And then the second thing is the larger the vessel, it's harder to opacify the vessel with contrast. And so then you get blood swirling and not a great image. So so there's still some kinks to work out in the periphery. The cool thing that you can see coming through in a couple different companies right now and devices is mixed IVIS and OCT images. So one catheter does both. And that could be really cool where there are some areas where you get drop off or whatever on an IVIS and you get a better resolution image on OCT but you're using only one catheter, so you're not extra cost or anything. And there's also a study that my good friend Jun Lee and colleagues are doing at CASE looking at OCT imaging in the tibials, which is a little easier to opacify. So we might get a little bit more data on that. So it's going to be later to the game. I think IVIS really is the right tool right now for intravascular imaging in the periphery. But the goal is to make this a bigger field to make these devices more practical for use in the periphery and then also trying really to focus on getting better outcomes for our patients. So, Do you find you're doing less pressure measurements now that you have IVIS or are you still doing pressures as often? Yeah, you know, that's a really timely question. I was doing a like bilateral iliac and then a, a left SFA all in the same patient the other day and I kept dragging pressure. You know, I do, I do kind of end whole catheters. I'll pull back if I don't have two pressure lines matched and I'm, I'm doing IVIS. And I'm like, let's just pull back a pressure gradient. It was completely correlative where I'm, if I saw an IVIS image that was severe, the pressure gradient was significant. So, and, but again, the pressure gradient didn't tell me anything about, is it calcified? What's the right diameter or anything? It just told me, you know, fix this area of the iliac. And so, you know, I, I was just joking with my fellow at the time that, you know, this was informative in the sense that I probably can stop wasting time doing that and I'll just focus on my IVIS image. So, so I'll do them. You know, I mean, I think we all, I think it's important. I like to document the appropriateness of everything I do. But when I save IVIS images, I, I feel like that's good evidence, you know, good data as well. Totally. Yeah, man. Well, thanks. I think I, I love what you're doing, Eric. I think you're a boss in all fields. So thanks for like, contributing. This article is done in such a great way, including all practices, taking out as much bias as you can. And I can't wait to see what else you're going to come out with in the next decade, man. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, I'll give, I'll give you one plug just yeah. before we wrap up is we did a um, multi-societal kind of roundtable in February with SIR, um, SVS, ABF, ABLS, SVM, and SCAI was the, the leading society to sponsor it. So yeah, so we had, I mean, everybody who's anybody in the endovascular space in particular using intravascular imaging participated. So that'll be the proceedings of that are coming out uh, later this year and hopefully we'll have some good conversations. Yeah, and again, the goal is this is a team sport. I want you know to do this with all my friends and colleagues like you and others throughout the vascular space. And so hopefully we put some good messaging out there and again, keep growing this field. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thanks again for your time. Um, this, is, this is really informative. And like I said, you're really contributing a lot to the entire endovascular field. 
and more. So uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. And I'll be excited to see you at Western Angio too. Thanks for being same here, buddy. Appreciate the time. Of course. Uh, thanks to the Backtable team. Thanks, Nick, for uh, making us sound good on this episode. And uh, yeah, man, Eric, I'm excited to have you back again for something else. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 